Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Dan Flores. Dan is a writer, historian, and former professor whose work explores the connection between people and the natural world in the American West. His most recent books, Coyote America and American Serengeti, are two of the most enlightening and informative books on the West's natural history that I've ever read. The former is a biography of the coyote, a surprisingly fascinating animal with a rich and severely misunderstood history. The latter explores the last big mammals of the Great Plains, pronghorn, coyotes, horses, grizzlies, bison, and wolves. And it also gives a great overview of North American big history. It's clear that Dan was a wonderful professor, because as you'll hear in this episode, he has a real knack for explaining complicated subjects in a manner that's understandable, engaging, and exciting. This conversation gave me a glimpse into what it must have been like to be a student in Dan's class at University of Montana. I walked away from the conversation full of new knowledge, but it also whet my appetite to go out and learn much more about the many subjects we covered. I could have asked Dan questions for hours and hours, but in our short time together, we managed to cover a lot. We started by discussing the coyote, how and why the animal has been so misunderstood, how it's very similar to humans in many ways, and how it's managed to thrive despite the efforts of the U.S. government to totally eradicate the species. We also talk about the pronunciation, why some people say coyote and some say coyote. Then we discuss horses, the misconception that they're a non-native species in North America, their evolutionary history around the world, and some modern-day challenges facing the few remaining wild horses. We also discuss Dan's childhood in Louisiana, his current property in New Mexico, his favorite books on the American West, and much, much more. A quick note on the audio in this episode, Skype was being a little temperamental during our conversation, so there are a few scratchy parts throughout the episode. None of them last all that long, and they shouldn't bother you too much. But as we all know, it's just one of those things that happens from time to time when you're relying on the magic of the internet. Anyway, this is an excellent episode, and I'm very excited for you to listen. If you haven't already, go out and buy Coyote America and American Serengeti. I can promise that you'll love them both. So here you go, Dan Flores. When you meet somebody for the first time, never met them before, and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? <laughs> well, I tell them uh, these days, I just tell them I'm a writer. Uh, and I, and of course, the follow-up question is, so what do you write about? And uh, I commonly say, well, I write about the American West. I write about the relationship between people and the natural world in the American West. Uh, I've been a professor for a lot of my career. I did that for 36 years and just retired from it three years ago from the University of Montana. And I live down in Santa Fe now. And so I'm just, uh, I'm writing full time and getting to indulge what I think I'm probably better at than anything else. Yeah, I definitely agree that you're, you are super, I never had you as a professor, but your books are some of the best I've read. And I'm relatively late to the game, given how much you've written. Um, but I, I just recently read in the last few months, read uh, Coyote America. And, you know, I thought I knew a lot about all this kind of stuff. And every page I learned something new. Um, 
I think the best way to maybe go into this is um, when I, so when I moved west, I, I'm from North Carolina, as we were just talking about earlier, and it was a coyote. And then I showed up in Wyoming, and everybody was calling it a coyote. So, and in your yeah. book, you 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 explain the difference there. Can you talk a little bit about that, the difference in the pronunciation? Because I think it's super interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that this animal is an animal with a lot of different names. I mean, you know, um, as you know from the book, I, I spend uh, uh, much of uh, a chapter talking about coyotes using the name prairie wolf because that's the term that Americans from Lewis and Clark onward Really, from for the next century after Lewis and Clark, most Americans called coyotes prairie wolves. But sometime along in the middle of the 19th century, uh, as Americans began to expand into the Southwest, we got to places like New Mexico, uh, to Santa Fe in particular, and there we encountered people who were using this old continental name for the animal, which... Uh, is coyote, and it's a word that comes out of the Aztec language. Uh, their language is called Nowat, and um, so the word goes back a very long time. Uh, the Aztecs uh, had an empire that uh, emerged about 800 to 900 years ago, and uh, the word seems to go back at least that far. I mean, the animals were probably called by other names by other people before that, but the term coyote came to the attention of Americans in about the 1840s and 1850s when they were getting out to the Southwest. And what they were hearing was actually a uh, Hispanicized version of the Indian word. And so coyote entered the language largely through people who were travelers. And it became kind of a the nationally known way of saying the animal's name after Mark Twain published uh, his book, Roughing It, in 1873. And he sort of gave the reading public a primer in not only how you spell the name, but how you pronounce the name of the animal. But as you know from reading Coyote America, I mean, I spent some time trying to why there are so many of us, especially in the central part of the country and especially in the rural parts of the country, who refer to this animal as a two syllable. Uh, and coyote, and I sort of concluded that that pronunciation came out of that same time period when Americans from the South and the Midwest, from places like Tennessee and Missouri, were out in the Southwest and heard this term coyote, and I think they maybe decided it was a little too fancy for them, so they simplified it to just two syllables, to coyote. They took it back to the South uh, and to the Midwest, and in much of the country, that pronunciation has prevailed right down to the present day. Yeah, I, it's funny, you know, growing up in North Carolina, I had never heard that. And then uh, I showed up out west and dealing a lot with the agricultural community. That is, uh, that's really all I heard. And I started, I got a little self-conscious, like, do I need to change the way I say this, <laughs> say this thing? But um, you mentioned Mark Twain's description um, of, of the coyote. And I think that's really interesting how... He described it. Well, I'll let you describe how he described the animal, but it was it was a lot different than how the Native Americans saw the animal. He described it as almost a, a kind of a beast, 
or a, a scary type animal. Could you talk a little bit about how the Native Americans saw the coyote and then how that how the, the image changed as Mark Twain's description kind of filtered out into the United States? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting part of the biography of this animal. I mean, you know, this is an animal uh, that goes back. I mean, it's, it comes from uh, the evolution of the canid family, which is a North American family of animals that emerged here, spread around the world. But the coyote is one of the members of the canid family that never left North America. So it's about as indigenous as an animal can possibly be to this continent. And it came out of this canid line and became its own creature, really, um, about 800,000 to a million years ago. So it's been around for a long time. The story telling the biography of this animal, obviously, uh, is a, a what the French call a long durée story. It covers a lot of time. And one of the things about it is that when people show up, it becomes something of a roller coaster ride for the animal because in the first 10 or 15,000 years of coyotes' interactions with the people who became uh, the native tribes of the American West, I mean, they took on the idea that this animal, among all the creatures that they encountered in North America, was probably the closest analog to human beings. The word I use in the book is an avatar, a stand-in for us. And that's why I think they made it into a deity figure. And so we ended up, I mean, one of the reasons we know this, of course, is that the literature from North America, it's an oral tradition literature, of course, a spoken tradition of stories. But the oldest literature from North America are these coyote stories, which may go back as far as nine or 10,000 years. And almost 30 odd tribes in the American West had coyote stories uh, that we preserved, uh, anthropologists and uh, ethnographers preserved those stories and set them down, uh, translated into print in the early 20th century. And so we have hundreds of them about this animal. So it's an animal that is regarded as a sacred creature, really sort of the right-hand uh, creature of the, the creator of North America and of mm -hmm. the world. Uh, the coyote in these stories is the animal that goes down to earth and makes sure that all the creator's ideas are, are set in motion. It almost functions. I mean, this is a, a paleolithic God. So it's long before Jesus, for example, which comes out of Neolithic agricultural traditions, but he, he almost functions like a, almost a Jesus figure really. And so that's the status that the animal has for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And then, you know, we Europeans come 500 years ago. We're not familiar with coyotes. There are none in the old world. I mean, we're familiar with wolves and bears and all kinds of other creatures. And we have uh, folk stories and we know what we think about an animal like a wolf. But the coyotes are so new that nobody really knows exactly what to think about them. And so to get to the question you you asked, it's obviously taking me a time a, a while to get there. But for most of the 19th century, um, the accounts that I uncovered about Americans' reactions to the animal were pretty value-free up until about 1970s. And then 
Mark Twain sets in motion uh, really a whole new way of thinking about coyotes with his book, Roughing It. As I mentioned, it came out in, in 1873. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know exactly what to think about coyotes up to this point, at least looking at the literature uh, from the 20s, the 1830s, the 1850s, there's no kind of negative connotation. And suddenly, Mark Twain describes these animals that he encounters uh, in Nevada and, uh, and near the immigrant, the old immigrant trails across the West. And he sort of characterizes coyotes as this despicable, cowardly little junior wolf. He, and, I mean, you know, Mark Twain, he gets warmed up. He goes on for three <laughs> or four pages in this. And he basically conveys to the American reading public that this is an animal that's just basically breathing up good air. I mean, it's it's a carrion eater. It's sort of a mammal version of a vulture. Um, it's a kind of a wolf. But it doesn't seem to have some of the more noble attributes that a wolf has. And by the time much of the uh, reading American public had read Mark Twain's description of the coyote, everyone had kind of concluded that this is an animal that we don't really need around. And that's sort of set in motion the next uh, hundred years, really, of American history, where we actually try to exterminate coyotes from the face of the continent. Yeah, it's amazingly interesting to me how that description from Twain stuck because it even stuck with me. Really, and it's—I I hate to even admit it because I, I feel so stupid now. But when I, up until I read your book, I just kind of always assumed coyotes were were scavengers, kind of, you know, bottom end of the the food chain, just kind of hanging around. But your book makes it clear that. They're about the closest mammal that there is to humans um, as far as in the way they act and the way they can team up or run solo. So could you talk a little bit about the, your, what you call the, the fish infusion pr- uh, idea of how these, these animals are able, unlike wolves or unlike any other big mammal, they're able to uh, kind of uh, – they can vary in the way they approach things. Yeah, that's one of the very interesting things about them and, uh, you know, as – um, as we've discussed already, I mean, I I came to the conclusion as I was doing the research on the book that uh, while we humans have an extraordinary story, uh, our biography is unquestionably the most interesting biography of of any of uh, the large mammals across the face of the earth. Uh, I don't know that I've en- encountered the story of another animal that quite equals that of the coyote for all kinds of reasons. But one of the things that that strikes you when you learn about them, and that, of course, is the purpose of writing a book like this, is to try to teach people, because everybody's having encounters with them now since they're all over the country, Mm -hmm. uh, to try to teach people something about this, this indigenous North American animal. But it's an animal that in so many respects... Uh, sort of functions like a Darwinian mirror for us. Because unlike many large mammals, for instance, here is another mammal that we can basically look in the eye and say, okay, coyotes are just about as successful as we are. They can live almost anywhere. They can spread around the globe if conditions warrant. And they, in contrast to so many other creatures in this 
uh, anthropogenic age and the age of what some people refer to as the sixth extinction. Here's an animal like human beings that is remarkably successful no matter how much the world changes around them. And one of the reasons they're successful, uh, as you mentioned, is that like us, and we're among just a handful of mammals around the globe that share this particular evolutionary trait, coyotes have an ability to exist both in packs in large numbers the way we commonly do. We're a social species ourselves, and we commonly exist in groups of people in towns and cities. Um, but coyotes and humans, too, have the ability, whenever conditions warrant and whenever they're harassed in particular, to engage in what's known as fission. The fusion idea is living together as a pack in coyote terms. The fission idea is when they're harassed, they will scatter as pairs and singles across the landscape, and they tend to scatter far and wide and colonize. And so they don't, unlike wolves, for example, which are purely pack animals, they don't have to exist as pack creatures. They can do this thing that we have done two or three times in our own evolution, usually to escape disease epidemics, where you scatter across the countryside in singles and in pairs and survive whatever particular horrendous event is chasing you. And coyotes have done it remarkably, especially in the last century or so. And kind of in that same line of, of their being able to kind of outsmart the conditions that are, around, that are around them, could you talk a little bit about how they are able to control their reproduction depending on the, the population in an area? Yeah, that's another interesting evolutionary adaptation that they have that has made them very successful. And by the way, I want to make sure that that your listeners understand that the way coyotes evolved these abilities uh, didn't really have anything to do with us. We've, we humans, especially uh, European Americans who have been here for only the last uh, 500 years and who have really encountered coyotes only in the last couple of hundred years, we've been too brief an experience for them to have made them evolve these uh, these abilities. They evolved their ability to survive and be such consummate survivors, largely because they co-evolved alongside larger wolves that were harassing them a lot. And so their abilities to, to do these kinds of things have to do with this long evolutionary uh, history that they have with larger canines being present in the world around them. But one of the things that we learned, and we didn't learn it until we had spent decades and decades and decades trying to poison them into oblivion, but we finally began to realize, as a result of the work of uh, a couple of biologists, uh, one named Fred Knowlton and another named Guy Connolly in the 1950s and 1960s, that the reason all of our efforts to try to control coyote populations or to destroy coyotes were not bearing any fruit is because they do have this ability to actually get more of their offspring to adulthood and to survive whenever they're under pressure. 
And they do this in a couple of different ways. One of the things that Knowlton and Connolly began to realize was that whenever coyotes were being poisoned and hunted from helicopters and from airplanes, they discovered that their litters were getting larger. Instead of the normal number of pups, four, five, six pups in a litter, sometimes coyotes were having 13, 14. I mean, I think the all-time record is 19 pups from a litter. And they tended to do this in response to pressure that reduced the coyote population across the landscape. And what that seems to have done seems to have functioned in a couple of ways. For one thing, it meant that with less competition for the food resources that were out there, it was easier for them to feed their pups and get more of their pups to survive. And with fewer coyotes on the landscape, uh, they to have some sort of hormonal trigger seem to set in motion this this ability to have larger numbers of pups. And so, I mean, counterintuitively, the more we have harassed them, the more we've tried to poison them, the more we've tried to shoot them and control their numbers, the larger their numbers have grown and the more they've spread across the landscape. Yeah, because they're they're in New York City now. I mean, they're they're in all they're in forty nine states, correct? They're in forty nine states. That's right. They colonized uh, their forty ninth state, Delaware, in twenty ten, and you know the only state they're not in is Hawaii. And of course, that's because Hawaii is way out in the Pacific. But it's not going to surprise me if a couple of coyotes don't uh, hijack a ship and end up on the Big Island at some point. Yeah, it wouldn't. But, it, it won't surprise know, me if they get there. No, they're, I mean, you know, they're so intelligent, uh, so very, very smart and quick on the uptake that, um, I mean, even the people in the federal government who are charged with the responsibility of killing them for the sake of the livestock industry have a saying, uh, a coyote will surprise you every time, they say. And so if they make it to Hawaii, I'm not going to be surprised. Um, so in your book, you, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, a huge amount about how the federal government and all these interests are, have just gone out of the way to try to um, annihilate this species. And it even goes back to some of the early conservationists. And you, you mentioned how, like, John Burroughs and William Hornaday, they were all advocates for killing coyotes back in the day. And it's funny how if they were alive today, I imagine they would they would see it differently. Um, but that made me think about kind of a, a different subject question, but, you know, TR, T- Teddy Roosevelt, back in the day, he was a big advocate for dams, and now people have kind of come around thinking dams aren't the best idea. And so I'm wondering, just in your experience um, studying this world and living in it, do you have any thoughts on things that we're doing now as a society or as a country that we think are good for the environment? But one day we're going to look back, you know, 70, 80 years from now, we're going to look back and th- and say, what the hell were we doing? That's the, that was the dumbest idea ever. Is there, is there anything that comes to mind? Well, I mean, it's, you know, historical hindsight works, uh, you know, the same way it does in sports. I mean, you can always kind of look back and see where we've made mistakes. Uh, I'm not sure that anything really pops into my head at the moment. I mean, I would you know, I'm I'm certainly not an advocate for the National Monument Review that we're doing now with the notion of reducing the size of the national monuments uh, in the West. I'm kind of an advocate of the public lands, primarily because I grew up 
in a part of the world, the deep south, that didn't really have much by way of public lands. And when I finally moved to the west in my 20s, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, mm-hmm. uh, that suddenly I was able to get into the landscape around me. And so I think Westerners in particular need to be aware of how important the public lands are and how much we should fight to hang on to them because they're our access to the world. I mean, I lived for 15 years of my life in the state of Texas, and so if you're a Westerner who who is concerned that we have too much by way of public lands in the Intermountain West, go to Texas time and experience what it's like uh, for people east of the Rockies with no way to get at the landscape. I mean, you can drive by and see these beautiful mountain ranges, but they're, you look at them through barbed wire fence with no trespassing signs in a way. Um, so, I mean, that's probably the one thing I would, I would, that immediately comes to mind because that's clearly something that's going on at the moment. But I would say in the case of those naturalists in the early 20th century who looked at coyotes and I, I'm afraid without thinking too deeply about it, sort of condemned them. Um, and John Burroughs did, uh, William T. Hornaday did, um, even John Muir didn't uh, emerge as much of a champion of coyotes, although he did make a comment or two that he thought that this might result in unbalancing nature if we got rid of them. But I think the reason this happened, and maybe this is our, our instructive lesson for, for our present age and for the future is that. This condemnation all happened with respect to coyotes before we had ever sent a single scientist into the field to do any natural history work on these animals at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, the animals were held up in trial as the arch predator of our time, and that's the term that the biological survey that had just wiped out all the wolves that in the West and now was about to try to wipe out coyotes. That's the term they used. Coyotes were the oldest predator of our time. And so they use this term and yet they've never done any science at all to try to figure out even what role this animal plays in the world. They didn't even know what coyotes ate. And so <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, and, and we're inclined to do this where we leap to conclusions before we sit down and really consider how carefully we ought to think about and evaluate a particular topic. And without any science to go on, but going ahead and writing the death warrant for an animal by passing a law in Congress that was designed to exterminate it, that happened for coyotes in 1931. I mean, that's that's clearly being really pretty short-sighted. And when biologists finally started studying them, what they began to report to the world was that this was an animal that played a very different role in nature than people thought it did. Yeah, it seems like as a species, we're, we, we must be hardwired to be just very, very scared of things we don't understand. Because not to get too political, but you could draw when you're talking about this with the coyotes. You you could um, take out the word coyote and put in immigrant, and it would apply to a lot of the political conversation that's going on today. And um, it's, 
I don't know. We're a, we're an interesting animal, us humans, um, <laughs> to say the least. Yes, we are. Um, <laughs> we are indeed. So, um, in your your other book that I just absolutely loved and educated me so much, American Serengeti. Um, yeah, we could. I could ask you questions about that for ten hours or more. But I wanted to zone in on the horses, um, the, the horses chapter because that was one of the most surprising to me. Because as a living out here for as long as I have and being interested in in all this kind of stuff, I had always assumed or thought I knew that horses were non-native species. And then reading your book, and then I listened to your your podcast with uh, Stephen Rinella, which was just excellent, and um, was educated very quickly that horses are one of the three original big mammals that is actually from North America. Can you talk a little bit about that misconception and about the history of the horse? Well, I think it's you know it's an easy misconception to understand because for most people. The horse is a domesticated animal. It's an animal like uh, cattle or sheep or goats. It's simply another domesticated creature that Europeans brought to North America when we came over here uh, several centuries ago. And so for without really paying any attention to the evolutionary story, I mean, your assumption is going to be, okay, the horse is a domesticated animal. And so it's a non-native animal. Therefore, it has no business being out in the American landscape, certainly not as a wild creature in the American landscape. The reason that's problematic when you actually know something about the evolutionary story is that, as you said very well to introduce this topic, the horse actually a creature unlike bison for example, which we think of as this iconic American animal. The bison is an animal that probably didn't immigrate to the United States or to North America until about 400,000 years ago. So it hasn't been here a half million years. Horses, on the other hand, evolved here 56 million years ago. <laughs> and they were here for that whole time, 56 million years, up until about 8,000 years ago. And in that time they were here, during which time they evolved into their present form. Now, we obviously, in our domestication of them, we've done the same thing with horses that we've done with dogs, where with a dog, we took the gray wolf and eventually, through selective breeding, turned gray wolves into beagles and shih tzus and uh, Weimaraners and every kind of usual looking wolf. And we've done the same thing with horses. I mean, we've created heavy horses, Clydesdales. We've created ponies. We've created all sorts of different looking animals. But the classic um, equus was here on the North American continent 10,000 years ago. And up to that point, it had supplied all the horses of the entire world. The horses that became the zebras and quaggas of Africa came from North American roots, from animals that migrated across the land bridges uh, out of North America into Asia and ultimately into Africa where they became zebras. And so 
the horses that were found in the old world basically were American horses that had left here and had migrated elsewhere. And those were the animals about 6,000 years ago in Europe, just before as a wild species, they became extinct. We finally domesticated. But in North America, something really interesting happened. And this is of course, one of the explanations why a lot of people struggle with understanding the horse as a as an indigenous animal. About 8,000 years ago, at the tail end of the Pleistocene, Pleistocene extinctions, which took away so many big animals, so many of our African-like creatures from North America, horses became extinct in the continent of their evolution while surviving in Asia, in Europe, and in Africa. We don't know yet why this happened. But we do know that right before the extinction, just within two or 3,000 years of it, 10,000 years ago, in some areas of North America, including the Great Plains, horses made up as much as 20 to 25% of the biomass of grazing animals uh, in those places. And then within a couple of thousand years, suddenly they're all gone. But the fact that they had evolved into their present form before they became extinct meant that when we Europeans brought them back here, the, the setting that had created them was just sitting there waiting. All the grasses that they had evolved to eat, the landscapes they had evolved to run across with those hard hooves, uh, that was all sitting waiting for them. And so, I mean, one of the stories I tell in that chapter in American Serengeti about horses is that as soon as we have them in the American West again, especially on the edges of the Great Plains, which is where horses had evolved, and they began to get loose from human control, they went wild uh, on the American Great Plains. And within about 250 years, there were more than two million of them running wild across the Great Plains. So they were sort of reassuming their old position as one of the primary grazing ungulates along with bison on the Great Plains of the West 200 years ago. So the, the federal government still refers to horses as non-native why is that? I mean, that's pretty simple and maybe a dumb question, but but it seems like it'd be very easy just to refer to it correctly. Um, is it just because the hist- it's easier for the general public to get their head around? I, I don't understand why they wouldn't refer to them as native. Well, it's uh, horses, of course, are a political issue these days, especially in the Great Basin, mm-hmm. um, which is where most of the wild horses are. That's sort of the landscape. Uh, the BLM lands of the Great Basin is where we kind of left horses alone. Uh, and certainly there are plenty of ranch horses that people turned out. And so that uh, provides evidence for uh, some people to say, well, these animals are nothing more than creatures that we just turn loose from ranches and let go. Um, and I think the reason probably that Uh, the biologists I've talked to still are inclined to refer to horses as non-native animals is because of the gap in time, that 8,000-year gap or 7,500-year gap between 8,000 years ago when they became extinct here and 
500 years ago when we returned them. And so I've had biologists, you know, argue to me that, okay, so in 7,500 years, you know, they continued to evolve in Asia and in Europe. And so the animals that came back were not quite exactly the same as the ones that became extinct. I've also had a paleontologist tell me that looking at the bones of modern horses and the bones of horses that were in the West 8,000 years ago, he cannot tell the two animals apart. But I think it's it's been a kind of a, a political decision in a lot of ways because it allows horses to be managed uh, in a way that doesn't claim that they're native wildlife, that they're like elk or bighorn sheep or mule deer. And uh, that allows us to uh, intervene a lot more uh, in what goes on with horses. And I, and I also hasten to say that the story that I tell in American Serengeti, which is a book about the American Great Plains, it's the country from the Rockies eastward, that happened to be the landscape that grassy savanna country out east of the Rockies is where horses evolved in North America. And my story about them then is that part of the West and not the Great Basin Deserts, which is where the BLM is involved with uh, in a, such controversy over what to do with horses there. Yeah, that is quite a quite a mess they're they're dealing with. I actually interviewed a guy on this podcast named Ben Masters. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he um, he did that movie called Unbranded, and he's he's yeah. been a bit um, he's been involved in some ways with that BLM with the advisory board for the BLM um, Mustang program, and there are no easy answers there. I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on if you were in charge? Do you have a, a strategy of what you would do, or is it just too complicated to have a have a, a easy answer? Well, it's, it's complicated to come up with an answer given modern conditions. I will say that what I firmly believe is missing from the equation are the horses' natural predators. I mean, so when horses were evolving on the Great Plains, of course, uh, they were being pursued by all manner of predators uh, in the Pleistocene period down to the point when horses became extinct in North America. There were uh, cheetah-like lions that, I mean, this is why horses buck, of course, is because they're a prey species for lions and cats. And so when cats jump on their back, the, the bucking motion is the horse's uh, technique for trying to dislodge that predator. So 8,000 years ago, of course, there were more predators for horses, and that's one of the reasons horses didn't uh, end up just spreading all across North America and inundating the landscape 100 feet deep in horses is because, of course, the resources and predation control their numbers. Uh, even in the period of the uh, 1700s and 1800s that I write about in American Serengeti, there were still predators on the Great Plains. There were still one and a half to two million gray wolves, and gray wolves very definitely brought down horse colts very regularly. There are plenty of stories from the literature about that, and mountain lions did too. But out of the Great Basin now, of course, we're in a situation where, I mean, there are a few lions in a couple of places, but we have no gray wolves at all. And so the horses essentially exist in that part of the world 
uh, it's first of all is not their evolutionary home, and second of all, uh, it also is a landscape that has no predators in it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, that is, it is quite a um, a problem. It's going to be interesting to see how they how they deal with it. But there are a lot of passionate voices on both sides, so <laughs> we will we will see what happens. Um, you mentioned uh, you you just seem like such an interesting guy yourself. And and when we were initially emailing, we had to delay this because you were going on a uh, rafting trip down Cataract Canyon, which sounded awesome. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about you. And I know you you mentioned growing up in Louisiana, and we both got these great Southern accents. But uh, what what led you to to the career that you have? It, you know, were there any experiences as a kid? Was your that that you know, in the outdoors that led you to this, this career? Well, I think, uh, two things probably happened to me. Uh, the one perhaps is, uh, not so unique. I grew up in, uh, pretty rural circumstances and I grew up in a little town in Louisiana, but the woods were just a couple of hundred yards away. And my, folks never put any restrictions on me from the time I was a pretty small kid about going out into the woods. So I just spent an awful lot of time when I was young, when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, out roaming the countryside and kind of, you know, being really almost intoxicated by the natural world, uh, trying to learn all the birds, and there are hundreds of them, uh, that were in Louisiana and, and roaming the creeks and trying to figure out in a country that was relatively flat where they would head and following them to uh, what amounted to uh, highlands of two or 300 feet elevation. And so I was kind of trying to figure out, I think, the natural world around me as a kid in a way that perhaps if you grow up in a suburban situation or certainly in an inner city, you don't get much of a chance to do. So that kind of plugged me, I think, into being interested in nature from the time I was very small. And the other thing that happened, which interestingly, and I've told this a couple of times, in fact, I've got a a magazine article uh, that'll come out in December in New Mexico magazine where I'm explaining why I'm in Santa Fe. Uh, I tell this story and that that article, I had this experience which I didn't recover as a memory until I was about 38 years old. But as a four-year-old, several members of my family, my mom and dad, an, an aunt or two, went along, and they went on a vacation to visit some other relatives who lived out in far west Texas. And Then we drove up into New Mexico and went to Carlsbad Cavern, which became, as it turned out, uh, as I discovered much later, first national park that I ever went to, except I was only about, I wasn't even four yet. I was only about three and a half years old. And so as I got older, I didn't remember this. The only thing I remembered, I just had these, these images in my head of red cliffs and this bright blue sky over red cotton ball clouds in the sky and somehow this overweening sense of Indians being associated 
with this place. And I had no idea where I had seen that, but I dreamed about this landscape over and over and over as I was growing up. And it was such a kind of potent image in my mind that by the time I was 16, 17 years old and had a driver's license and my parents would let me take a car uh, away from town overnight or over a weekend, I immediately drove west, uh, drove across Texas, drove across Oklahoma to Colorado, to New Mexico, trying to somehow connect with this image that had been in my head since the time I was a kid. And then, as I said, I'm 38 years old. I go home to Louisiana to a family reunion, and I'm talking about, you know, I'm trying to explain why I'm so fascinated with the West. I'm at that point uh, living in West Texas and about to go on to Montana to live. And an aunt says to me, so I wonder if it had anything to do with us taking you to New Mexico when you were three and a half years old. And I said, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? She said, so you don't remember when you were you were three or four months from turning four, we took you along with us when we went out to West Texas and New Mexico. And it all kind of came together. This is where my fascination with the West had come from. That's really cool. At the beginning of American Serengeti, I remember you wrote that you were uh, passionately in love with deserts, and that's why you you have settled down there. Is is it because? Do you think it's because of that early experience? I think it very well may be. Plus the fact that deserts are the base reversal of the bayous and swamps of Louisiana. <laughs> I think I think I was kind of in a way looking for you know the opposite in the world. Yeah. And uh yeah, something like that. That is well yeah, that's about as opposite as you can get. I um I spent some time down on the uh Louisiana coast near Hackberry. You ever heard of that? Yes, I have heard of that. Yeah, man. That I was down there for about three weeks and that was the most some of the most memorable three weeks of my entire life for a lot of reasons. That if I ever write a book, that's what I'm gonna write it about. <laughs> um Well, I mean it's yeah, Louisiana is a fascinating place in all kinds of ways. And I you know, my parents just passed away here in the last, um, in fact, my dad passed away last summer. He was three weeks shy of 100 years old. Wow. Um, and my mom passed away a couple of years before she was 97. And so uh, my brother, sister, and I have sold their house in Louisiana. I don't know how often I will get back to Louisiana. I still have a few relatives there, but everybody in my family has basically moved out of the state and gone somewhere else. Uh, at least in my generation. So I don't get back there as often as, uh, as you know, I would have thought I would, but I still have the, you know, the bayou still flows uh, through my veins, I think. But I really am, as I say in American Serengeti, I'm really a, I mean, I like a lot of landscapes, but I'm kind of a devotee of, of the high desert of New Mexico. I mean, I'm sitting right here at the foot of the Southern Rockies, uh, but kind of out in the pinyon juniper country uh just south of the edge of the mountains my wife was born in santa fe and uh so she still has a lot of family down there and so we we go down there a a good bit and um it's just it's just amazing and my parents who are from north carolina and have lived there their whole lives they came out last year and drove from colorado down the arkansas river valley then down through um you know through southern colorado and into new mexico just following 285 and 
they'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it, they, they described it as if they were on a different planet. And for when you think about it, the first time you see it, it, it really is like that, especially if you're from eastern North Carolina or somewhere that's, that's basically a, you know, a rainforest. That's right. I mean, and that's, uh, you know, that's that base reversal difference that attracts me coming out of the Louisiana bayous to this part of the world. It is like a another planet, and I, I can tell you I never get over that sense. Every daybreak I look out across this landscape, which is you know, a gorgeous, beautiful landscape that people have been living in for 10,000 years, but uh, I, I just kind of never get over the sense that uh, it's kind of otherworldly. I mean, it's, you know, it's, to me, it's not an accident that the planet in the solar system that we seem to be aimed at is a desert planet, Mars, I think, because there's something about the desert that really compels us. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I completely agree. Um, I know you lived, you, you taught at University of Montana, and you, you lived there. Um, I, did you live in the Bitterroot Valley? Did you, were you down down south in the in the valley? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I everywhere I've I've been in my adult life uh, and I've been able to, I've always lived out of town. I like having a place uh, maybe 15 miles or so away from the city. I mean, I like like cities. I just like going to cities and doing my thing in a city and then returning to the countryside. Yeah, and, uh, that it's makes a, sense. Yeah, it's an old, yeah, it's an old maxim of, you know, Henry David Thoreau's. He he once said, you know, the the primary dilemma in someone's life is deciding whether you want to rest your foot in civilization or in nature. And what his recommendation was, was try to do uh, to rest one foot in nature and one foot in civilization and living like this kind of enables me to do it. And so when I was in Montana, I mean, in West Texas, when I was there, I taught at Texas tech for 14 years. And so uh, I lived in a canyon outside town, about 15 miles from town, uh, built a house there. Then when I went to Montana, I did the same thing. I bought a piece of land that was off the grid, uh, basically lived in a solar-powered place, at a little ranch that I built myself until finally some wealthy Coloradan came in and dragged power a couple of miles, and uh, I plugged into power after about 10 years. But, yeah, I lived – it was 30 miles, so I was farther out – uh, from Missoula uh, than I usually am. And so I was in the foothills of the Sapphire Mountains in the Bitterroot Valley. That is a absolutely beautiful place. And it's a real interesting place. I'm sure you've read um, Jared Diamond's Collapse, and he has that chapter devoted to the Bitterroot Valley. Um, yes, he has. And uh, so, you know, you were there, I guess, from the 80s, you were there pretty much twenty years, mid eighties to the mid to you know two two thousand fourteen, I guess. And that during that time, a river runs through it came out. Legends of the fall, you know, people started wanting yeah. to fly fish and own ranches. Um, how did you see that area change in your time there? Because I, I know they were pretty loose with their with their zoning laws and that kind of thing. And so there there was at least for a while it was development run amok in, in some corners of that valley. What what were your thoughts on that, kind of watching it as it happened? Well, when I got to Montana, and it actually wasn't until uh, 1992 that oh, okay. I went there, um, and A River Runs Through It came out the next year, and Legends of the Fall about uh, three years after that. And so Montana was very definitely 
in the news as this sort of, uh, you know, as we referred to it in those days, the last best place. Um, I mean, I can tell you one thing I remember very vividly somewhere. I think I still have maybe a digital photograph of this time magazine about the time that I moved to time magazine did a map of all the Hollywood movie star ranches that were in Western Montana. And of course they were, they were all over uh, the area around Livingston, the paradise and around Bozeman and the Gallatin Valley. And as well, the other major area where people concentrated was around Missoula Mm -hmm. in the nine mile Valley and in the Bitterroot Valley. And so it was like, it was like a world being discovered, but Part of the discovery also meant, as you pointed out, that suddenly people were buying land and offering large sums of money for land right and left. And no one had really been able to come up with some economic strategy for very much making a living in the Bitterroot Valley. They had tried back in the 1920s, and it was really too cold for apple orchards. And they had planted wheat in the 60s and 70s and by the time i got there most of the wheat farmers were giving up that really wasn't working either and so it looked like the best economy that was available was to just sell off your rents to somebody from california who wanted to buy a piece of it and for a while that kind of became the economy of the bitterroot valley and one of the things that made it dicey is that the bitterroot uh, in contrast to the uh, to missoula which is a, uh, was always referred to as the Valley of the Liberals. Missoula is a very liberal town, sort of like a Montana version of Boulder. Yeah. But right next door is the Bitterroot Valley, which is an extremely conservative place. And so they would not impose any kind of zoning restrictions on this kind of development at all. And so all through the 90s, I mean, really up until – the recession of 2008, I mean, what we got to watch happen in the Bitterroot were just places sprouting like mushrooms out of the ground uh, and all sorts of new subdivisions planned. I mean, when I left in 2014, there was a subdivision planned for down in the valley below me, about five miles away, that was going to be larger than any of the nearby three towns in the bitter event wow. so now what i've learned since then is that that subdivision finally collapsed but i mean there were just no restrictions on anything it was held bent leather classic old west kind of growth and um you know when you're in a county that doesn't have any zoning restrictions that's basically what you get when i was um Preparing to talk to you, I came across an article you wrote, and it was from a while back, um, called In Defense of the Ranchette. And I yeah. thought that was a great article, and it, it, I would not have expected that. Um, just just reading the title, I would not have expected that you to write that. And then when I read it, it, it made perfect sense. Um, could do you? I mean, do you even remember right? You've written so much stuff, you may not even remember writing it. But if so, could you just kind of summarize your thoughts on, from that article? Because I thought it was really it was really interesting. Uh, yeah, I do. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons I remember it is because a lot of people out there in the world remember it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I have people ask me about that and still mention that article. I mean, and it's 20 years ago that I wrote that. 
Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think what I was trying to say, I was trying to point out because at the time, the ranchette was being held up by the environmental community as sort of, uh, you know, the snidely whiplash of the moment. <laughs> this was the the villainous sort of uh, project that was destroying the West and converting the West into urban sprawl and uh, the urban wildlands interface was one of the terms that was being tossed around a lot. You know, and what are we going to do with all these people when fires threaten them and uh, bears eat them and wolves haul off their grandkids and all this. And so what I was sort of trying to convey, <laughs> I was trying to, to impose, which I, I guess I've done a few times. I mean, I'm a committed environmentalist, but I've always wanted environmentalists to argue things from the basis of good, solid information and especially good, solid science. And so I was trying to point out uh, things like, okay, first of all, it's not somebody living on a ranch yet that is destroying places like the Bitterroot Valley. The fact is the previous inhabitants of the prior 50 to 75 years had pretty much already done that. They had killed off all the grizzly bears. They had killed off all the wolves. They had driven the bison out of the Bitterroot Valley, and they had introduced spotted knapweed and the hay they were feeding their livestock, which had basically spread over the entire valley and taken over all the grasslands with this exotic non-native weed. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't ranchettes that did that. This had already happened. And what I was trying to point out with that piece is that most of the folks who lived on ranchettes, uh, you know, they this was a, a modern phenomenon where you weren't being held to try to make a living on a piece of ground. And therefore, you could actually do what I was doing, which was trying to restore that 25 acres that I had to its original condition before it had been mined, it had been logged, it had been overgrazed, sapweed had spread across it, and people had introduced exotic grass to it. And so I was trying as a ranchette owner to reverse all those trends out of the prior 75 years of history and try to bring the piece of ground I was on back to uh, some facsimile of its original condition. And I think I ended it by talking about having elk herds beginning to appear on my place because there were viable grasslands there. Yeah, I that was the other great piece. I, I really enjoyed that. I, I kind of pointed out that the he I just wanted to you know make sure that the environmentalists knew this. The heroes of the environmental movement, the Aldo Leopolds, for example, lived on ranchettes. Aldo Leopold wrote uh, a San County almanac on his little ranchette up in Wisconsin. And I was trying to point out that you know Georgia O'Keefe painted all of her great paintings of Ghost Ranch, living on a little seven-acre ranchette at the foot of the Ghost Ranch cliffs. So there were some positive benefits to come out of the ranchette phenomenon. Yeah, definitely. And, then, and yeah, I, liked, one of I liked how you, you talked about when you zoom out and look at it, you know, the valley at a big picture level, um, 
by any metric, you know, the number of elk, number of bears, it was, the place was in a lot better shape when you lived there than it was, you know, say 70, 80 years ago when it was just mostly, um, you know, large unbroken ranches. And I think a lot of that's probably because of the influx of people who were not from there, but moved there because they loved it and they wanted to take care of it. Whereas some of the people who, you know, were from there, they, they, they obviously loved it, but they, they may not have, they may have taken it for granted in some ways that outsiders, um, did not, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, you know, they, they were constrained in a lot of ways because they were trying to make a living off that land they owned. And when you have to make a living off of it, then you, you push it, you graze too many sheep and too many cows on it. You, you know, let exotic weeds loose, you kill off the predators. And, you know, for somebody like me living on a 25 acre ranch yet, uh, with a university position in the town 30 miles away, I didn't have any need to make a living off that land. And so I could actually return that land to pristine condition. Um, so that was kind of one of my major points. Yeah, that's it, it was a great piece, and it, it, just the title drew me in. But the more I'm going to read it multiple times because there's a lot in there, and I'll put links to it on the webpage so people who are listening to this can can check it out. Um, we're already coming up on an hour, which is amazing. I don't remember having any college professors like you that that the time went by quickly. I just remember drawing pictures and being bored. <laughs> Um, so I've got a few quick questions um, that I've that I've been asking everybody I've had on the podcast, and it's been great to be able to compare and contrast their answers. So we'll we'll go through these okay. real quick, and then I'll let you get back to your important work. Um, this is a big question for you, knowing how much you you've read and studied. But do you have any favorite books of the American West? Maybe two or three books that, if you could only recommend two or three, these would be the ones you would say people needed to read. Well, I uh, now I've always been a big fan of Wallace Stegner's Beyond Meridian. Oh yeah, that's a great uh, which is yeah a bio- It's basically a biography of John Wesley Powell, and it's also an exploration of confronting, which he argues that Powell did, confronting the West as it really is, rather than the West of the imagination, the West that's in people's minds, and it probably. Um, maybe is one of the places that I, I came up with the idea that, you know, we, you have to do good science and do good research before you really can come to solid conclusions about things. And what Stegner was trying to say about Powell's career. So beyond the hundredth meridian is certainly, uh, I think an important book. Another book that I've always really liked, uh, I used it in classes a lot. I mean, I gotta have to say, this is a hard question because about 20 books pop into my mind immediately, but I've long been a fan of, uh, of Don Worcester's Dust Bowl book, The Southern Plains in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's one of the books that explain why, for instance, the Great Plains country has a history and seems to have a future that's so unlike that of the rest of the West. While the rest of the West continues to draw people and its population increases and cities get bigger, 
out on the Great Plains, the high point of population really was back in the 1920s. And except for the handful of cities that uh, people have congregated in, Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, Amarillo, places like that, uh, population is kind of, except on the Indian reservations, the population on the plains is dwindling away. And Worcester's Dust Bowl, the Southern Plains in the 1930s, I think is a really terrific explanation of how American culture confronting a fragile landscape kind of never paused, just bulldozed right over the top of it. And the result has been by not stopping again and thinking hard about what we were doing, uh, a part of the West that simply has a different kind of future. This is the part of the West where I think in my American Serengeti book, I argue that we've, you know, we should probably, at least up in Montana with the American Prairie Reserve, try to restore some semblance of this great African-like bestiary that we once had in the West. And I'm talking about the historical animals, bison, grizzlies, gray wolves, pronghorns, elk, and the American Prairie Reserve is trying to do that. I will say one other book that I'll, you asked me for three, and I'll give you one other one, and it's one I read fairly recently. I wrote a blurb for it, and I don't think it's actually out yet, but it's going to be. Uh, It's a book called American Wolf. Mm -hmm. It's by a writer named Nate Blakesley, and uh, what it is is basically the story of the wolf packs that have vied for control of the Lamar Valley in Yellowstone National Park uh, in the more than two decades since we reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone in 1995. And he's able to write this book in this remarkable way where the wolves of these particular packs actually become individual animals that you come to know as characters in his book. He's able to do this because there were two or three close observers of these wolves in Yellowstone who kept voluminous notes day after day after day. One of them was a park employee named Rick McIntyre who thought he would probably write a book about wolves in Yellowstone at some point and then finally decided a few years ago that he wasn't ever going to do it. And so he turned his notes over to Nate Blakesley. And so this book, American Wolf, is the best way I can describe it. I think this is how I wrote my blurb about it. It's sort of the Game of Thrones story of wolves (laughs) in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone National Park. And, well, uh, it that is sounds a, great. An absolutely mesmerizing read. And uh, what makes me uh, elevated among some other books is that I think what I would have to say about this book is that it gives us an idea of how wonderfully primeval the West can still be right here in the 21st century. And that's a credit to what we've done with conservation, uh, that we can create a part of the West that still preserves the kind of struggles for territory and for status among that must have been going on in the West for 30,000 years. 
Yeah, that sounds like a great book. I can't wait. I'll put that on my. Uh, I'll, I'll get it. Make sure I get a notification when it comes out because that that sounds great. Sounds like it would go very well with your two books that I just read as well. Um, I'll be interested to hear your answer to this. What is the the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And that can be craziest, the scariest, the funniest. Just a if you had it, very well could be your your uh, three and a half year old trip to the the caverns. But is is there any experience that that sticks out in your mind as being very um, formative or powerful? Well, I've had I've had some where you know I came close to dying, uh, but I think uh, the most powerful experience I've had uh, actually is going eighteen days down the Colorado river through the grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a kind of immersion in nature in the West in time, uh, by which I mean the geology of the continent that I'm not sure one can get in many other ways. And so, um, yeah, I would say, I would say spending nearly three weeks uh, going uh, almost uh, 300 miles through the Grand Canyon is probably the most powerful experience I've had so far. That makes sense. It's hard to get your head around how majestic and massive that canyon is, even after you've been in it. It's uh, <laughs> It doesn't really scale with the human brain, I don't think. Um, this will be a hard one, but where is your favorite location in the West? And I tell people I ask these questions, but I don't have answers myself, so it's kind of unfair. But <laughs> do you have a favorite place? Yeah, I think uh, my favorite place is uh, right where I live. <laughs> I thought you would say that. I think, that. Uh, I mean, yeah, I spent, uh, you know, having done this twice before, this meaning looked for land outside an interesting city and found uh, a very intriguing piece of land, and I did it twice before. I did it in West Texas. I did it in Montana. And I took, with that experience under my belt, I took almost two years finding this piece of ground that I live on outside Santa Fe, and uh, I settled on it because uh, the first time I walked onto it, which was 18 years ago in 1999, just about this time of year, the very end of of August, I walked onto it and sat down on an overlook of the canyon that's on my place and thought, holy, holy cow, this is like a vision quest. (laughs) And so I ended up buying it. So I actually think, and that's an unusual response to your question, I know, but I actually think the piece of ground I occupy and from which I watch the world go by is I, my favorite place in the West. I think that's great. I mean, that's the goal, I think. I mean, I, I, don't, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a perfect answer. Not many people can say that. Um, so next to the last question, if you could make a request of the people that listen to this podcast, and it's people who love the American West in one way or the other, and they, they show that love through the, their work in conservation, or some of them are athletes, some of them are artists, uh, some of them are ranchers, just people that, that have an appreciation for the West, some, some of them who live on the East Coast and, and are not out here but, but wish they were, um, do you have any 
request or words of wisdom that, that you would offer the people listening to this? Well, I would say that, you know, Wallace Stegner always said the West is the geography of hope. To me, it's kind of the, it's the soul of the American experience. I mean, every part of America, um, since Europeans and people from Africa and Asia and elsewhere around the globe came here to settle, uh, everybody has kind of been pointed towards the West. It's kind of the magical uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And it still feels like that to me. Uh, I've always thought that, you know, what we did in the 19th century with the creation of the first national parks, those were originally in the West, appropriately enough, because they were based on the public lands. That was the 19th century's great contribution to American culture. Um, In the words of, uh, you know, the recent uh, film, one of America's greatest ideas Mm -hmm. was the national parks, and they were focused on the American West. In the 20th century, what we contributed was the Wilderness Act of 1964 and the Endangered Species Act of 1973, and those weren't specific to the West, but most of the great battles that have been fought over wilderness and the role of wilderness in shaping the American character, and many of the battles fought over endangered species, like the wolf, for instance, have been fought largely in the West. And what I I hope listeners take away is the idea that we're not done in the 21st century. We've got all kinds of great projects going on to help retain the American West as the pot of gold, the part of the country with its public lands, its grandiose landscapes, um, its ability to invite people in, and by that I mean into the country itself to experience it. We're not done. And to me, one of the great conservation projects that's available in the West right now is the American Prairie Reserve Project up in Montana, where we're trying to recreate the grand American Serengeti that once was one of the great marvels of the world and that we completely destroyed by about a hundred years ago. And if we can do this in an area twice the size of Yellowstone Park out on the Great Plains of Montana and have wild horses and grizzlies and gray wolves and bison and pronghorns and elk and all the great animals of the last 10,000 years of Great Plains history roaming there, then I think we're going to accomplish something that is going to be pretty significantly close to the Endangered Species Act, the Wilderness Act, the National Parks idea. And it's not just happening in, in, uh, Montana either. I'm about to come to uh, Denver and Boulder in the middle of September and talk about a project that's happening in eastern Colorado to try to do the same kind of thing. So I think there's a lot to be done, a lot of grand projects, a lot of 
protection, of course, and holding down the fort, but a lot of grand projects that are still out there to inspire us too. Well, that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much. How can people find out more about you and your writing? I'll put links to to your books. Um, I know you don't waste much time on social media, which I really admire. Um, any other any other ways people can connect with you? Well, I think the the easiest way to do it um, is to uh, I've got an author page on Amazon, so you can go to my author page and you'll find a, a biography. Uh, uh, someone has done a fairly elaborate Wikipedia. I saw that. That is answer. elaborate. Yeah, it's very elaborate and and kept up to date. I'm kind of stunned at it, but uh, that's out there too. Uh, you can, uh, if you need to get in touch with me uh, directly, uh, my you can find my email by going to the University of Montana, and so uh, University of Montana will clue you into a direct connection. But yeah, you're right. I don't really do. I don't have a website. And I don't uh, really do social media. I mean, I'm just I've got other things to do. So no, I'm so uh, <laughs> I'm not that difficult to find, but a little more difficult to find than most people, maybe. Well, this has been so great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for asking me. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperial.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.